Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of February 24th, 2021. I'm Charles Hain, writer at No Film School. I'm here with George Edelman, editor-in-chief of No Film School. Hello. And we are here talking about some big, kind of frankly shocking news about the Hollywood Foreign Press Association who runs the Golden Globes. We're going to be talking about a change to Amazon Prime Video Direct, which is kind of huge. We've got two new cameras that are competing with each other out this week. So we're going to talk about the 6K Pro and the FX3. We've got all that and an Ask No Film School this week on the No Film School podcast. Our first story this week comes from the LA Times. The LA Times has revealed that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association has zero black members, which it's literally 2021. (laughs) It is literally 2021. (laughs) What are you talking about? How does the Hollywood Foreign Press Association have zero black members? I mean, like, like setting aside immigration and and chattel slavery and all those things that have taken um, black people all over the world. There's also the entire continent of Africa, which is populated with native black people who are natively um, black, who you would think that they would have had at least a single, like it's the Hollywood foreign press. So it means all the other countries except America, no one in Africa is covering Hollywood <laughs> movies in any way, shape or form. And thus part of eligible to be in the Hollywood foreign press. There's not a single but just even like, it's just no so wait no black person in the world is a part of the Hollywood Foreign Press. Think about that for a second. I mean, what? Yeah, I guess my first thought when I saw this story was I laughed because the Hollywood Foreign Press is actually known to be something of a joke, and this only confirms the jokeness of it. And it also undercuts any sense that the Golden Globes are meaningful, in my opinion. And I had none to begin with. So, so as far as so, if you take something from none to less than none, I don't know where to even begin. Like, I mean, I think, and the story. uh, So, there's a story in the Hollywood Reporter about the LA Times reporting about it. We have a story at NoFilmSchool.com about it. But there's also lists of many things related to the Hollywood foreign press and the Golden Globes historically that have made it questionable, that have put up their ethics and integrity (laughs) on the line. Like, and so that's part of why if you see people malign the Golden Globes, even compared to the Oscars or other awards, this is why Uh, a lot of it is just about getting perks getting swag, getting junk. Like, I mean, some of the things that are nominated and win, um, it's just, there are a lot of ways in which we talk about diversity and the importance of it nowadays in this industry or others, but this is just absurd. And I just think it's a great reminder, honestly, that things like the Golden Globes mean nothing. They truly mean nothing and we should ignore them. That's my opinion. I mean, I, I, I think they should mean nothing. Unfortunately, the Golden Globes, the ceremony always comes before the Oscars. The Golden Globes do mean something in that notoriously Oscar voters do not watch everything, right? There's too much to watch. And I suspect when people talk about, you know, they have a lot of momentum coming out of the Golden Globes. What Mm -hmm. they mean is Mm -hmm. if you win a couple of awards at the Golden Globes, you are more likely to have Oscar voters actually watch your movie and thus vote on it. Uh, the LA Times does an amazing interview series with anonymous Academy members every year. And the number of times people are like, oh, well, I voted for that one because it was the only one of the five I had seen. And you're yep. like, you're in the Academy. Watch all of the contenders. Come on. But like, you know, everybody, I guess these folks, I mean, people are busy. Well, it's infuriating that this thing, which is such, it's just a racket. The Golden Globes are a racket. It is literally the Hollywood <laughs> Foreign Press yeah. Association. And like, I respect the hustle, but invite other people into your racket. Like, I totally understand. Like, in the six, you know, whenever they formed, they got together and they were like, hey, we're all the foreign journalists who live in LA. We should have an award show so that we get to meet the celebrities because we want to meet famous people because we're, you know, journalists. And like, they came up with this racket. But like, we're not supposed to let rackets run this long. Once people realize it's a racket, it's supposed to fall <laughs> apart. 
And like, so there are 87 let me, members. Let me read you something. Let me read oh, you something it. from one of this. And then, because I because it's so on target with what you're saying. The Times have reported that the HFPA, Hollywood Foreign Press Association, has been paying its own members increasingly large amounts from an increasingly large pool of money generated from the organization's TV deal with NBC. In the tax year ending 2019, five board offers were paid between 63000 and 135000 Other members were paid for writing for its website. Two dozen members received 3000 to watch foreign films last month. Members of a travel committee earned 2000 a month. Members on the festival committee earn 1000 a month. Members of an archives committee earn 2000 a month. So there's a lot of money being made by the people involved on a monthly basis, on an annual basis, just for doing this. And I laugh when you say it's a racket. It reminds me of how it's just, if you're going to do it and if it's going to continue to go, at least like, yeah, be diverse about it or <laughs> let more people Invite some in other on the people. Take, I guess. <laughs> all of capitalism is a racket and all people are saying is let other people in on the racket. You, you make a great point that they do mean something. When I say they mean nothing, that's like my, that's like I'm trying to speak it into existence because oh, I, yeah. we need, like we should stop. Like my hope is like, can we just acknowledge that? Yeah, they're not uh, an ev- evidence of anything. But I think for the same reason, you're right. Like members of the Academy can't watch every movie. They vote for the one. And and I, I would also say, and who can blame them? So where does the culture start to shift where we say like, hey, guess what? The Oscars are not the equivalent of the Super Bowl in that it is not empirical evidence of something like it's not a win or a loss based on a a, a head to head where you could actually say like, yeah, they played the game. So and so won, so and so lost. They both showed up like it's actually not like that at all. It's more like, hey, you know, a lot of people didn't even see this one because, you know, they didn't get around to it or it wasn't in the Golden Globes. So they didn't it wasn't on the short list. God knows what didn't have the same press money behind it. Like it's just not evidence of of some of of greatness. Well, it's also the Oscars were created by Louis B. Mayer deliberately to get people to compete with each other so that they would stop organizing to compete with the studio bosses. Right. It's much easier if you're desperate to win an Oscar and you want the opportunity to be in a movie, you're going to negotiate less on your contract and own your own power less because and if you feel like you're in competition with other people, you're not going to collaborate together as much. That's why he invent like the Oscars were invented on purpose as a distraction. Um, it's like and it's brilliant. And whole, it's brilliant in yeah. that sense because it Absolutely. because it also does a, it does a great job um, making it so you're like, yeah, I'll do that movie because it's Oscar bait. Like to this day, it continues to be the kind of thing where you can negotiate down or or have power or control. Um, and I mean, I mean, it works the other way. If you're a director or a star who's won an Oscar, it, it may impact some of your earning or your press ability. Yeah. Although notoriously, Vilma Sigmund said uh, everybody lost money the year after they won an Oscar because the offers slimmed down because people assumed you just won an Oscar, so you're not busy. Um, I, I, so, so you're super busy. So he said, if you look at his career every year, he was nominated or won the year after he didn't shoot anything. And he said, it's really frustrating because there's no money taped to the bottom of the statue, which I thought was a, a pretty good <laughs> quote. Um, here's the thing, though. Even though the Oscars were started for that thing, things can be started for problematic reasons and then grow into good institutions. The Oscars has worked really hard to diversify its ranks. I, I, I know people who've been invited in the Academy in the last couple of years. They're trying to get younger. They're trying to get more diverse. You can do work. You can write, you know, America was started with slavery, but we are working to try and make it a better country. The Academy Awards was started as a distraction, but people in the Academy are actively working to try and make it a better institution that does good things, that's preserving more work, that's nominating more work that, that uh, you know, the movie that won last year, whose name is escaping me right now in embarrassing ways, Para... Um, Sight. Parasite. Uh, you know, Parasite winning <laughs> Parasite. last year is obviously... Yeah. Uh, yeah I wanted to say Parachute or Paranoid for some reason. Uh, <laughs> the Winter Madness is getting to me. So, like, I just because something's founded for the wrong reasons doesn't mean we can't all work to make it better. And I think the Academy Awards deserve some credit for a lot of the invites they've made to people who are Academy voters now. Like if I ever made it to a point in my career where I was uh, invited, I would absolutely say yes. Like get inside and try and make systemic change and try and like do what you can to push things forward. Like I don't disrespect the, like people who are joining the Academy. 
what is so frustrating about this insane story is that it's like there's 87 members in this organization in 2021 and not a single black person seriously like golden globes like i want to add to what you're saying about the oscars that the other day i came across a clip so there's we all know that there are a number we're coming into oscar season so this is an appropriate conversation but we know historically there have been a number of times there were stars or filmmakers who skipped the Oscars and didn't accept their awards. And one of the notorious ones was was Marlon Brando for The Godfather. And he sent, I'm blanking on her name, but an Indian. Sashin Littlefeather? American. Yes, that's right. Sashin Littlefeather. Great recall there uh, to accept on his behalf. And Marlon Brando is a strange, he was a strange guy. He did some weird things. He did some very bad things. Um, he's not a role model. But I came across on, on the Twitters, it really awesome clip of him doing press not long after when someone just asked him point blank, like, why didn't you do it? And he talked about diversity and he just talked about how Hollywood for so long has just poisoned the well in terms of representation of minorities from native people to black people, to Asian people, to all kinds of people. And he was just talking about how it impacts uh, the self-worth of people who look like that or have that ethnicity as they grow up. And it was really articulate and well said. And, uh, you know, the guy's done, did some very bad things in his life. But, um, and he was even part of some of those poor representations. But the awareness and the, and the commentary on it back in the 1970s, you can tell that it moved the needle over time, which, which, which is what you're talking about now. People from the inside making an effort, like the arc bends slowly, but it bends. And this is just, again, it's 2021. This is absolutely ridiculous about the Golden Globes. Okay, moving on to another one that's that's more strange than anything else. Our other big story that we need to talk about this week, Amazon Prime Video Direct, which if, if you're a filmmaker and you don't know Prime Video Direct, you're missing out. Prime Video Direct is a great feature. So, you know, Amazon Prime, major streaming platform, it's 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 well vetted and people will like go on Amazon and like randomly search to watch things. And Prime has a big membership and it's the only one that you can just put yourself on, right? Like you can't just put yourself on Apple TV. You can't just put yourself on Netflix. You need to work with the distributor and have a deal with Netflix. And there needs to be sort of like this whole choreographed thing. Literally. Prime Video Direct, if you have the video in the right video format and you have your subtitles and you've got a poster and, you know, if you've made a real movie, you can't just put up every cat video you make. But if you've made a movie that <laughs> that is like, you know, they don't want to turn into YouTube, but they're open. You can just be on Amazon Prime and it's, you know, it doesn't show up in their search results I mean, algorithmically, you need a lot of ratings to show up well in their search results. But like, you know, when someone makes it to your show, it doesn't say Prime Video Direct on it. It doesn't say I uploaded myself. I'm not a real filmmaker. It just treats it like every other project. Right. <laughs> um, and that's wonderful of Prime Video Direct. I have two projects up there. Uh, my feature film, Angel's Perch, and my uh, series, Salty Pirate. You guys should all go watch them. I'll never stop plugging. And uh you know, Angel's Perch, after several years, actually made some real revenue on Amazon Prime. It took a long time and a lot of ratings. And if you watch my things, whether or not you like it, give it five stars if you like the podcast. That's the deal. And so Amazon Prime this week said, we're not going to make short, accept short films in Prime Direct anymore, and we're not going to accept documentaries. And this is so weird. Short films, actually, I think is probably makes total sense. There is no revenue in short films. Nobody's really browsing Amazon Prime, looking for a 12... Like, if if someone's sitting on their couch, on their Roku, in the Amazon Prime app, they're looking to kill that evening. They're looking for a feature. They're looking for a, a series. They're looking for a big, long thing. Short films are great showpieces to try and launch bigger work, but I don't know that short films are necessarily the right thing for Amazon. So I, I understand that decision because, you know, they have to pay people to vet these things. They have there was a huge backlog at the pandemic. Um, people have to evaluate that like, it's not, you know, a snuff film and it's not pornographic and there's other things. So, you know, ruling out short films, if if you're Amazon and you look at it and you're like, we've made no revenue from these shorts and, because no one ever watches them and it costs us money to evaluate them. I get that, right? Especially since the revenue is not going to be very good because what they want is they want minutes streamed. They want to know, oh, people are paying for Amazon Prime and they're watching an average of 90 minutes a night 
over a year. And, you know, a short film is going to give them an eight minute increase in that average. Like it's not, I get it. Amazon prime. No, I, I'm bummed. Cause I have a couple friends who short films have made money on Amazon prime, but like, I get it. Documentaries is a whole other animal. Yeah. What? I'm just curious. What is the reasoning? Like why? You know, like, there is I, no I, official I guess... reasoning. The guess and my first thought, and then I was, con- like, I was comforted to see some people say this on the internet is that uh, people were using, you know, they had to pull a couple of anti-vax documentaries last year and for better or for worse, like the, the two ways you can go are either YouTube where you can say whatever you want. You can publish as many like 9-11 was an inside job documentaries as you want, or you're curated, you're vetted, you're accurate platforms, right? So like, you know, you're not going to see a major anti-vax documentary on Netflix or Apple TV because frankly, vaccines are very safe and there's a tremendous scientific consensus on that and anti-vax documentaries are a little bit nuts. And so the big major platforms are like, we don't want to, like I, I'm so deeply anti anti vax that I will I will drop it in a movie podcast. I don't care how many people tweet at me about it. Vaccines are wonderful; they save so many lives. If ten million people get vaccines and seven people get really really sick from it, that is a worthwhile civilizational trade off. So the guess is that people were trying to get political with the docs going up on Amazon, and at some point somebody was like, you know what? done you guys are going to try and like poison this well with crazy documentaries about like how we should all cut off our own feet we're out peace no thank you to the entirety of documentary and um that's a bold swing to be like actually we're just out of documentaries but that's that is the best guess people have right now about why i'm not sure that that's the correct guess but that is certainly the thing that um, first occurred to me when I saw it is I was like, oh, I bet there were a lot of crazy documentaries on there and they got tired of, you know, because like if you get rejected, there's I'm sure there's a grievance process and I'm sure that they were having like long, drawn out, crazy fights with RFK Jr. about anti-vax documentaries <laughs> and it just became. Well, here's the thing that. Yeah, here's the thing that I mean, talking about anti-vax and talking about like all of these that that sort of topic. I think the reason that it makes sense, and Amazon is an interesting study of this, but we've seen more and more as the internet and big tech and all these sort of things become a common place to get information and news and what is considered fact or not fact not being able to fully vet or having to fully vet and then question with documentary documentary, even though there is the assumption of objectivity or factness behind one, it does operate in a gray area. Documentaries always have bias. Great documentarians always acknowledge things like this. And so it becomes a fascinating question because I mean, I bring up big tech because Platforms like Facebook notoriously have encountered the issues of, well, what are we, you know, what are we promoting? What kind of misinformation or what kind of sources or, you know, what are we presenting as as fact in a world that is not vetted? And I think it makes a little sense for Amazon to shut down, the more I think about it, this ability for anybody to put their documentary up as though it is nonfiction, right? Because the blurring of the line of this is fact, then people will start to wonder, well, it's on Amazon. I saw a documentary on Amazon about it, you know, <laughs> like, and it's called why vaccines will turn you into a crocodile. And then that is something that happened to my cousin, by the way, he turned into a crocodile. Yeah, that's what happens with the vaccines now, apparently. That's the concern. Yeah. But no, I and then you become part of the cabal of lizard people that actually runs the world, right? You can self-publish books, right? Or or like I've seen them, you know, about, you know, climate change isn't real. Whatever it is that is your and you can find data, you can cherry pick studies and you can present an argument that maybe sounds legit. We just live in a very complex era when it comes to information versus misinformation and sources. And I can completely understand why Amazon is like, I just want to turn this faucet off because this is complicated. And then my platform is being used. My, I'm talking about like Jeff Bezos, like one person is making this decision, but the platform is being used to perhaps promote as 
fact something that isn't. But I think the most important thing to look at with documentary always is like documentary, not fact, right? So this is a, I mean, for filmmakers, for media consumers, this is just a fascinating issue. When it comes to documentary, how is it framed? You know, there's documentaries out there about everything. And the power of narrative in documentary is that you can you can make a pretty convincing argument, right? Talk to some experts. Yeah. Fake, fake a few experts. I don't know. So the, the important thing to remember here is this this is just self-submissions. So I'm, I'm about to defend Amazon, and I can't believe I'm about to defend Amazon. But whatever, I'm going to defend Amazon. Um, I mean, I was defending Amazon. <laughs> yeah, it is an amazing and generous thing that they allow self-submissions. None of the other major platforms do. That has been an overwhelmingly good thing for filmmakers, and I'm grateful for it. I understand th- how difficult it is to do that for the documentary format. And let's remember that like documentaries will still be able to land on Amazon Prime. It's not that there will be no more documentaries on Amazon Prime. It just needs to come through oh, yeah, an yeah, established yeah. distributor yeah. that has a distribution relationship with Amazon. And there's a lot of them, and it's going to be great. And I think it's still going to be a a working relationship where documentaries end up on Amazon Prime. I I, I wish you know Amazon has more resources. I wish they um, still allowed self submission, but maybe maybe somehow devoted more curators or moderators or something. But like on the flip side, who knows how much that was going to cost and how many moderators were already going to be there versus how much of it's getting watched. And, and, and I understand, I mean, it is a, yeah, it's a, it's a bummer if you're like just an independent documentary maker, who's making some sort of amazing documentary on rocks. And yet for whatever reason now, you know, you're not going to be able to connect with your audience in the same way. That is a bummer, but I, you know, in this universe, I can understand why Amazon would feel the need to make this decision. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Next up, tech news. This week has two new camera releases. One is the Blackmagic 6K Pro, and the the other is the Sony FX3. So I'll just talk a little bit about both of them really quickly. So the Blackmagic 6K Pro is very similar to the original 6K from two years ago, which means it's got an EF mount lens, it's got a Super 35 roughly sized sensor, but they've made some improvements. It's a new sensor, so they're saying uh, better color, better latitude, better low light, which is good, especially low light. It's also got an articulating screen, which is a big step forward. We've never really seen that from Blackmagic, but it is huge. And it's a 1500 nit screen, which is gonna make it way easier to work with, like in the hot sunshine, you're gonna be able to see what's going on the screen. Um, you can also add a viewfinder, which I find kind of interesting. It's like an articulating viewfinder if you're a viewfinding operator. So that's all super cool. And, you know, it's still a Blackmagic Pocket, which means shoot 6K. It shoots in raw natively. You can shoot straight to thumb drives or uh, SSDs or, um, you know, all sorts of cool internal cards. So, you know, it's still a Blackmagic Pocket. It's a very popular lineup. I am a big fan of Blackmagic cameras. I just shot something on the 12K. Um, and I did that 12k review last fall and I'm, I'm, I really like a lot of the things they do. I was a little, maybe I got my hopes up too much. I was hoping that the 6k pocket was going to have a new lens mount, uh, like something open like L mount or the Canon RF mount so that it would be easier to, to adapt to PL mount lenses. I was also hoping it would have a new sensor that was like more similar to the 12k sensor. Like maybe it would be like, you know, a 12k in a pocket. Maybe it doesn't seem like we're going to get that this year. I understand not getting the 12K in the pocket. You got to get a year out of the full size 12K to people. I'm, I'm really kind of like, yeah, it's weird. And then at the other side of the spectrum, Sony has come out with the FX3. The first thing we have to say is I don't think the FX3 would exist if the Blackmagic Pocket 4K and 6K weren't such big hits. For the decade before the Blackmagic Pocket came out, 
camera manufacturers were so comfortable with like, we have our cinema cameras and they're bigger and they're fatter and they're chunkier, but you've got your full XLRs. And then we have our digital still cameras and they also shoot nice video, but they're small. And Blackmagic Pocket was like, what if we made something as small as the still camera, but you had XLR points and an SDI port and it shot raw. Why wouldn't we do that? And like that really changed so much. And the FX3, the same way with Canon C70 from last year, is Sony's response. It took about three years because that's how long it takes for big companies to do it. But it's like a tiny little camera body. It's like just slightly bigger than the Sigma FP, but it's got a full frame sensor and it's got the E-mount for your lenses. So like you can easily adapt it to PL or EF or whatever you want. It's 4K 120p frame capture. It has their new color science Cinetone. So like you've got some real options now for really stunning images out of small cameras that also work with your workflow, right? Like when we think about a mirrorless camera or a digital SLR, like the old 5D Mark II or whatever, you could get these beautiful images from it. But like working with your sound recorder was annoying and trying to get sound into it sucked and like getting video out of it in order to record raw or to send it to your monitor was hard. You couldn't power accessories. These cameras, the Blackmagic and now the Sony, there's like accessory mounting points and there's power and there's like real connectors and XLR and there's the stuff that you need to work on a set in these tiny little camera bodies that you could throw on a Ronin S2 and run around all day. Like it's amazing how close we are getting to that dream of like a tiny little credit card or pack of cigarettes sized camera that you just stick a beautiful lens on and you shoot. And uh, it's, it's super exciting. They're both really interesting. You know, you get raw out of the Blackmagic Pocket 6K, which is a huge plus. You get a, a, a lens mount. You can adapt to a lot more lenses with the FX3. You also get really dynamite autofocus on the FX3, like eye autofocus where you can like point at someone's eye. I mean, I'm curious to know comparison between the two and comparison between the two and everything else on the market, obviously, in this range. I'm also fascinated by the idea of like what's almost like the camera, the digital camera singularity of like, will there reach a point where the small bodied, you know, pocket for style guys get close to the capacity of the bigger beefier guys in a way that then it's like, why do you choose one and not the other? Like how close do we get to, I know we're not there yet, but do you ever project out and think about it? You know a lot more about this tech than I do. Will there be this point where, you know, the FX line, they have like the bigger cinema ones, the smaller like pro creator ones. What happens when they get too close to each other? Like, is there, what do they, when do they differentiate? And then also like kind of related to that, you build out one of these, we did a great post once on no film school that was like, what does a black magic pocket really cost you when you accessorize, like to really get it to shoot the way you want, like not just to, to add everything to it. Like, what do you end up, what are you looking at? At what point does it make sense to, I guess, upgrade? to one of the cinema lines and kind of like the same question I was just asking, like at what point do the smaller ones just get so close to the cinema lines that you're like, why do I need the cinema lines? The thing you need out of the big camera body is all powering accessories and integrating with larger crews at this point. Like the FX3 is going to shoot stunningly beautiful images that you can intercut seamlessly with Sony Venice and FX9. That's like their job in life, the FX3. And it's going to be phenomenal. You're going to get like beautiful images out of it. So what we're really talking about with those cameras is you go to the bigger camera so that you, it's like easier to mount the follow focus, easier to mount the uh, wireless video assist, easier to power all of those accessories, easier to right. engage with, you know, like all of that stuff. And that's always going to need to be a bigger body because it's about like having mounting points and, and having a place for all that, you know, cooling fans and all that stuff. So like, those bodies are not going to get much smaller. They're just going to keep packing in fancy features. And you got to remember for a lot of shoots, you know, I did, you know, I did years of my career on cameras that size. And like, if you're not constantly going to gimbal, mm, camera bodies of that size are kind of wonderful. They have some heft to them so that you can do these like nice stable moves. And like, we're so used to it. There's not like a big incentive for like, your A camera to become FX3 sized. What we are going to see is FX3 cameras get better and better and better till people are going out shooting whole like episodes of television on FX3 sized bodies 
because the accessories are going to keep getting smaller too. And, you know, in five years, we're going to have an FX3 that will also has wireless video built in and has, you know, um, wireless audio built in that, you you know, you hand a little receiver to the sound mixer and it automatically pairs the audio to the thing and you don't have to worry about whether or not um, there's an XLR input because, you know, you're handing the other half of the XLR in a wireless way to the sound mixer. So that's what we're going to see. I think in the next couple of years, we're going to very do something in this size. Like, you know, they already have the mini LF, but I think they'll do like, they probably won't call it a micro because at that point they're, they're really getting into Blackmagic's naming. It'll be more expensive because it's airy, but there'll be something and you'll see a whole lot of like Sundance films where they shot the whole thing in that format and it'll, it'll be great. So I think that's coming. That's cool to think about. I didn't, I didn't imagine Airy would get into this space. I think we're a couple of years away, but I think that there will be something from Airy, absolutely. Because, you know, Airy only does things they feel like they can do super duper well. But I feel like the tech is getting really close to the point where they could do this well. So I think we're on our way. All righty. And then last up, an Ask No Film School. And I don't even know what it is. George is surprising me. Yeah. So this so is interesting. My honest, unprepared answer. Yeah, it's going to be good. Uh, and and uh, I have thought about my answer to it, so it'll be interesting to get your, non, your, your not thought about answer. Um, I'm sure you thought about the topic a lot. So what I'm doing here is I'm really formulating a number of questions and comments that have come our way in the last week or so through articles on the website, as well as through our last, last week's podcast. And I'm adding in kind of a, a little spin to it. But, you know, we talked a lot about Gina Carano's firing from The Mandalorian last week. And it was also a highly trafficked post on the site, as well as in the world, a story. And it continues to draw out, you know, updates and certain news outlets continue to write about it. We don't because it's kind of done in my opinion. But the reason I want to talk about it today is a lot of the questions have been geared towards, you know, the obvious just disagreement with us. Um, the four of us on the podcast last week represented a certain perspective that we didn't really voice the idea of like, hey, was you know, we didn't agree with the notion that it was wrong to fire Gina Carano, none of us on the podcast. But the question that's kind of come up that I've thought about is Hollywood does have a culture and a lot of industries do where you have to be very careful what you say. And it's not just always political. People in the industry have to be very careful about whether or not they criticize other people in the industry. And I think the question is, is it safe in Hollywood when it's concerning your livelihood to have an unpopular opinion? That was the question that I, I kind of cobbled together from a number of different questions. And my answer, I'll give you time to think about it, Charles, is my answer is it's not safe in my opinion, in Hollywood, to have an opinion publicly that is unpopular. I think that it doesn't, it's not just about politics. And it's part of why I took the angle that I did when I wrote about Carano's firing, which is that if you are extremely outspoken in, in, in the media, in public, you run the risk of losing opportunities in this industry. This is a PR-fueled industry. And if you want to work and succeed, you have to be very careful and you have to think about the things you say very carefully. And it's not just about whether or not you share an unpopular political opinion. That certainly could drive you into a strain, into, into a niche market. But you also have to be careful what you say about stuff that other people are doing. Some people get away with it. Some people, eventually those things catch up with them. But everybody I've known who's worked and success, been successful has had a little bit of, you know, even on a private text thread, they might not say super negative things about certain people that might be their next paycheck or because they've trained themselves to be careful. And I've, I can't tell you how many times I have close friends who work in very many aspects of the industry where I'll say to them in texts like, you know, so-and-so is not going to read this <laughs> or such as like, this isn't going to get leaked to THR. Like you can, nobody cares. You can say whatever you want. You can tell me you think X and Y show is crap, but people are careful and they train themselves that way. And I do think fear is part of the reason why. 
Personally, I'm not anymore careful. And I never really was because I don't pursue or care as much about like if I'm going to be able to get a job in X writer's room because I said like, oh man, that writer is a hack or I hate that show or I think that showrunner is awful or like, I don't really care. I'm not looking for that paycheck. But again, I know a lot of people who are, and they are very diplomatic and very careful. And I, that, I, I extend the question and the conversation out past the political thing, because I really think it's, it, 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 it applies in a lot of different ways. Because, you know, if you want to go around, for example, and say, like, I'm anti-vax and I'm, you know, hardcore anti-vaxxer in Hollywood, it may not affect your livelihood in any way, but it may, because it's an industry of PR. And people and people have to work with people they like. They have to work with people they want to work with. Um, they might not want to work if it's if all things being equal and you're weighing somebody who's like got these really loud opinions you don't like and don't agree with. I mean, you might choose not to work with them, whatever the opinions are, political or that you just know that they've trashed such and such showrunner before. Um, and I'll think I'll, I'll mention one more example before I, I let you answer, Charles. I'm really curious for your thoughts, but. I had uh, I have an uncle who's been an actor. He was a working actor for decades, continues to be. Um, he was working on big projects before I was born. Um, and he, he's been very outspoken politically. He's very progressive, by the way. I think I've mentioned it before, but he's been very outspoken politically about things that he believes that have impacted his ability to work on shows. He was he left a show, a running series. An actor getting a role on a network series is a big deal. And he lost one because he was just extremely outspoken about certain viewpoints that conflicted with the show and its content and the direction the people behind the show wanted it to go in. And they were like, we can't have this. So it's not always a conservative viewpoint that's going to get you in trouble. It can be a lot of different things. And that's something everyone, I think, from an educational standpoint should be aware of. Like that, it can impact your ability to get work in Hollywood. I mean, I'm going to – I have so many thoughts about this. Be, be, <laughs> let's, uh, um, so first off, when I was eight, I wrote the word fuck on a piece of paper and I passed it around the bus. And <laughs> I got turned in for it and I got hauled to the principal's office. My parents got called in. And so from at least the age of eight, I was always aware that my speech can have consequences, that like the things you say can offend authority. So like how people can make it to the age of 35 and like, they're like, I can say whatever I want. There's <laughs> going to be no consequences. Like, I just can't imagine that because like from a very, very young age, I was very aware that I'm like, oh, you can't really like there is quote unquote freedom of speech in America. And there is, which means the government can't restrict your speech, not private companies, important to remember, but like you write fuck on a piece of paper when you're eight in like, I'm from rural Illinois. Like it's a very conservative <laughs> little town. Um, you're going to get your ass. I just the imagine this. I'm imagining this bus going through like a cornfield and like little Charles with yeah. like a, a beanie on, like writing the word. Yeah. But anyway. Sitting in the back with my leather jacket. Yeah. Writing <laughs> fuck on pieces of paper and passing it around the bus for some reason. You know, uh, good times, good times, happy childhood memories. So like there's a certain extent to which like I find people who are like, I'm getting fired for what I said. I'm like, don't, don't, aren't we all constantly aware that we're in a civilization and that like there's people with more power and that those people with more power might take offense. So like, I think there's that. I think that like, I want people to be able to express their opinions and not get fired for it. And I want us all to work for expanding the realm of what we talk about and moving forward because progressive ideas and treating people more equitably. And like in the 1950s, you could get fired for saying that you feel like both women and men should make the same thing in the workplace. And so like, I recognize that there's a lot of things that I think are important to say that like changing what the law is, like just because something's illegal doesn't mean it's wrong. Just because something illegal doesn't mean it's right. So like, I recognize all of that. The frustration for me is I find a lot of times, a lot of people who are like, I'm getting fired for what I believe in are just assholes. And it's like, no, no like we're, you're, you're getting fired for like not even being willing to engage. And like, I frequently find people who compare like people who attack having to use the new gender pronouns 
or not new gender pronouns, people who attack, you know, using deferential gender pronouns to the pronouns someone wants to hear. The people who argue against that are usually not willing, in my experience, to engage in a nuanced conversation about why we might consider respecting someone's pronouns. And they're usually just like, well, I have a right to say, you know, whatever I want. And I'm like, well, you do have that right, but it's also kind of, you're being a dick. And so like, <laughs> you, you know, like it is that, but like, it's all complicated. Like I, I'll be honest, at least once a month, I wonder if something I've said on the No Film School podcast is going to cost me a professional opportunity in the future. At least once a month we end a podcast and I'm like, man, saying that, am I going to be in a meeting in like four years pitching and somebody's going to bring up that I said this on the podcast? And like, you know, I've decided that I'm just going to say my real opinions on the podcast. And, and if the, you know, like I would love to do a show with Amazon because I think Mrs. Maisel's great and they do great shows. I simultaneously wish that they treated, that they had unionized uh, warehouse workers and that they maybe split off the web services to another company. You can, you can want both those things. You can respect what the content arm is doing and think the corporate should be doing different things. Saying that on a public platform like this podcast, and I don't know how many listeners we have, and maybe nobody who works at Amazon listens, so maybe it won't bite me, but like, I do wonder <laughs> about that, right? Like, I do wonder all yeah, the time Yeah, I mean, no, but that. that's, like, I could, we have a lot of listeners in the podcast, the internet, as the Facebook movie famously said, the internet is written in ink, right? I mean, well, you, all- you, have, yeah, this stuff's out there. There's a lot of stuff out there that we've all said and done. I'm grateful that when I was 18 to 24, well, let's be honest, 18 to 34, <laughs> but like in my early, yeah. early years, the internet was, it wasn't as easy to just post every dumb thing you thought and did on the internet. The kids coming up now have to be careful. And the adults are old enough to have fully formed brains, one hopes where they already are. But here's a couple couple points that I want to tack into what you're saying. You and I are very like-minded, um, so there's going to be less of uh, within our con- our discourse about these topics. There's always going to be we're going to agree. We mostly do. Um, but what's interesting to me, the counterpoint often is like, you know, we should be tolerant. We should by- be diverse. We should allow other people to have diverse opinions we don't agree with. We should, you know, is the liberal left and the progressive left shutting down freedom of speech in the sense that they're like, there's only one way you're allowed to discuss blah, 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 blah. There's a lot of this and it's out there. It's it's a big part of the conversation. There is a thing called the paradox of tolerance. Um, it comes up a lot. I, was I bring it up a lot. I was just about to say that. Yeah. And it's uh, in 1945, philosopher Karl Popper he wrote a book called The Open Society and Its Enemies, Volume 1, The Age of Plato. So this is, but this is a really important thing. It's been memefied. So you might have all seen it or heard about it outside of having read this, you know, philosophy book. But the paradox of intolerance is basically the idea that if a society is tolerant without limits, then eventually it will be destroyed by the intolerant. And the the reason is unlimited, I'll read the quote in a way, unlimited tolerance must lead to the disappearance of tolerance. Now it's a paradox, so it sounds like kind of gobbledygook, I understand that. But if we extend unlimited tolerance, even to those who are intolerant, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant society against the onslaught of the intolerant, then the tolerant will be destroyed and tolerance with them. So it's just that... If we tolerate intolerance, tolerance dies. That's it's it's that simple. And so we have to take a hard line against the idea of intolerance. And that starts to extend out to things like not being willing to use pronouns. Like it gets into the into the crevices of the places we are where it's like, well, I should be allowed to be as intolerant as I want, right? Because that's my freedom of speech. Why aren't you being more tolerant, libtard or whatever? And the thing is like, no, I'm defending me as the libtard here. I'm defending tolerance like to the death. Because as soon as we become tolerant of intolerance, it's over. And that's that's the tricky part. So it's not Nazism. And this cuts right to what Gina Carano was saying, which is that she was comparing a progressive culture that wants to shut down her perhaps intolerant or just questionable viewpoints as being Nazism. Like it's, it's the opposite. That's where it gets tricky. And you have to kind of like flex your brain a little to get into the space of the paradox. But it is a complicated idea. Um, it's the stuff of philosophy classes. 
but does it matter in the context of a filmmaking podcast? Like, yes, absolutely. My boss, Ryan Koo, who is the CEO and the founder of No Film School, he could listen to these podcasts and he could easily say like, I don't want that on the No Film School podcast. Like, he's in charge. He could say, you're, you can't do that anymore. You're off. Like that, that's a consequence I run every time I say what I think. Um, I that's do not frequently him- say that Ryan needs to separate his trucking business from the rest of his business on this podcast. <laughs> and eventually he's going to have a problem with me saying that all the time. But like, there's a, you know, there, there are there, that's the consequence I run for having my opinions. Um, A lot of my opinions he agrees with a lot of my opinions. He doesn't, but like there's, but there are, um, there are always going to be consequences to having opinions and speaking them when it comes from the government is the thing that, that I think we have to keep coming back to. Like when it comes from the government is when it becomes something closer to like a blacklisting, a censorship that's beyond uh, just like a private company doing its thing and deciding, hey, this is what we're what messaging we're comfortable with. The side point that I've heard is the gatekeepers in this, in the case of a no film school podcast, Ryan Koo, or maybe even George Edelman to a lesser extent, but like are the ones who get to decide the discourse. Like, what are we okay with? And that's the power of, you know, owning a platform. Uh, Disney gets to decide that they don't like Gina Carana's discourse. And that's the power they wield. And if, you know, there Except are people out Disney's there Disney's who... also responding to their audience, right? Like Disney would have put up with Gina Carano in the 70s in a heartbeat. Yes. And and we this goes back to what we were talking about earlier and the Marlon Brando clip I cited where, you know, people have said these things for a while. Uh, did it affect Marlon Brando's career that he was outspoken about these things? Yes, it did. Uh, it changed what was available to him. He affected his career in a lot of ways, but yeah, it, it wasn't a super popular thing to do at the time. Um, it made him difficult. It wasn't part of the mainstream. Now that sort of opinion is more part of the mainstream, but that's that's the way things go. So if you, I encourage everybody to have opinions, I encourage everybody to hear one another's opinions, whether they agree or disagree. And I think we all have to show up to work uh, with people who might not agree with us. And sometimes that's good that we have different opinions, but we have to also keep in mind this paradox of intolerance. Like I said, like we should never be tolerant of intolerance. Yeah. I mean, for me, I like to remember George Orwell's thing where George Orwell was like, everybody should shoot at least one Nazi. And like, you know, (laughs) it's, and he, and he went to, he volunteered to fight in the Spanish war to kill some fascists. We cannot tolerate intolerance. And if you're promoting intolerance, you know, we can, if you're, if you, if you take it all the way to the Nazi stake, we can punch you in the face or shoot you. Um, and if you're not taking it to the Nazi stake, like we, we still don't want to have a civil discourse that includes intolerance. That's the thing we cannot tolerate. Um, you know, the other thing for me in all this is a little bit of faith. Like the thing I always remind myself whenever I say something vaguely controversial on here and I'm like, but you know what? Like I believe in the universe or something like I believe in a bigger ordering something to the universe. And so I just have to assume if I do what I think is right, if I give the opinions that I think are right, if I'm honest about the things that I think in the world, you know, maybe it'll come back to bite my ass if I ever get to pitch Amazon something or maybe it won't. But like I'm going to get to make whatever I'm going to get to make. And I'm just going to like head in the direction of making those things and, and eat the consequences. And what's funny to me is that, you know, a lot of the people who decry this are also the people who are like, you know, uh, everybody gets a participation quote, a trophy and whatever, and all of that stuff. And it's like, well, no, you're, you're just taking the consequences of your own actions, guys. Like you're doing a thing that's real dickish and it's coming back to bite you. And like, okay, so you did something dickish and it bit you. That's just consequences. And we all just sort of have to accept consequences for the things we do in the world. Yeah, look, like, I mean, it's the same. It's, it's again, it's just not even, it's not even always political. It can just be like, I can be an extremely opinionated, negative person in terms of my taste and what I think of certain movies and television shows. And if that, if, if one day I was trying to get, you know, work on, as a writer on a show and someone was like, man, you tweeted that all my writing was hack. There's no way I'm hiring you. I remember. I'd be like, eh, 
you know, fair. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, respect. I mean, like, I mean, I'd be like, I'd be like, I mean, that sucks for me, but like, that's what I get for just having a loud opinion and being aggressive. And like, that's, and I live with that because that's, so it's just the same to me. Like, that's why the thing is the same, whether it's a political opinion, whether it's just a taste thing, whether it's, yes, you have to be careful in this industry. Everyone should be aware of that. Um, does that mean you shouldn't have opinions? Absolutely not. Does it mean you shouldn't express what you believe? Absolutely not. Like in my opinion, like you should always, we should know what pe- where people stand. Like, and then we should all make our decisions based on that. Like, I don't want to censor anybody. Like, so let's be like, yeah, put your cards on the table. Like that's better. So I, one of the things I don't like about the industry is that there's a kind of like, everybody kind of hides what they really think. I don't think that's good. I don't think that's helpful. Maybe you want a writer on your staff who's hated your past writing. Maybe. I don't know. But, like, be honest. Put it out there. Awesome. Well, this was a good Ask No Film School. All right, guys. Uh, plug in the pluggables. I've already said you can find all my stuff on Amazon Prime. A- Angel's Purchase my feature. Salty Pirate is my show. I had a really great email exchange with someone who watched Salty Pirate this week. So if, if you saw it and liked it, you can email me. Um, if you saw it and didn't like it, like, I don't know why you would want to email me about that. But, you know, maybe don't. But give it five stars whether you like it or not. <laughs> and I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. You can find all the stories we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Please like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, give, leave a comment, good or bad. Um, send us questions. Ask at nofilmschool.com. Uh, please also check out our gear guides. If you scroll to the bottom of the homepage on No Film School, you will see a little thing that says gear guides. You can click on that. You can head over to a page that will show you tons of gear guides we have written. Charles has contributed to many of them. They will break down a lot of the gear that is out on the market by category, by type, by price range, what you should buy, why you might want to buy it, why you might not want to buy other products. Like if you're looking to buy stuff, bookmark the page and use it. It's a really cool tool that we're going to continue to update and add to over time. And thanks so much for listening.